0: Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Jamie, and, um, and let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your peace. We ask that you help us to hear your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so today's gospel reading, it comes from the 14th chapter of Luke's gospel, okay? And uh, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, we're just going to do like a little recap here. We're told that it is the Sabbath and that Jesus has been invited to eat at an important Pharisee's house. Okay. And I love that Luke is quick to point out that this meal and, uh, with all the Pharisees and law experts is at the house of a prominent Pharisee. Right? A VIP. Very important Pharisee. Um, and then he absolutely cannot be bothered to name him. You know, like what a flex. I love that. So, Jesus starts out strong at the Sabbath meal. Uh, First, he heals a sick guy, okay? He's kind of daring the leaders to do something, right? And they don't do anything. Um, And then he starts one of his parable paloozas, right? Where he starts telling a string of parables. And he starts out with two that seem to be about good manners. (laughs) Good manners. Um, Because he saw how the leaders had all sat themselves at the best tables, you know? So he starts in, he's like, when you're invited to a feast, don't sit yourself at the best tables, you know, because what if someone more important than you shows up and then you're asked to move so that they can sit at the good table, right? You will be humiliated. Yeah. Yeah. So it's better to sit in a humble place and then be invited to a better place. And they don't get it. Okay. They're like, thank you, Emily Post, but we're good with our seats. And, um, and they totally miss it. You know, they totally miss it. Um, Because they've honored themselves right in front of the Messiah. You know, the most important person of all time, worthy of all glory and honor, Jesus Christ. Uh, They take the good seats. You know. And then in verse 12, he challenges them, okay? And he's like, uh, when you give a feast, don't invite your friends and family, the ones who invite you to their feasts, right? Like, don't get repaid feast for feast. Do something generous, Okay, invite the poor and the crippled. Invite those who cannot repay you. And if you do this, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So he challenges the leaders to be generous, you know, the way God is generous to us. Right? We can't repay him for any of the goodness that he gives us. But we can be generous to each other and to strangers. And this challenge, you know, goes over like a lead balloon, um, and in verse 15, we're told that someone at his table just blurts out, well, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. You know, and I don't know if, like, he couldn't take, like, the awkward silence, like, if he cracked under the pressure. Or maybe he thought he was helping Jesus out. Like, Jesus just bombed on these two parables, and he's like, well, let me help this guy out. He doesn't know what he's doing. So he blurts out this, like, non-sequitur. Um, well, it's not really a non—it's like a half-sequitur. Um trademark that. Um, you know, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And Jesus rolls with it, okay? He's like, oh, okay, well, let me tell you about the feast of the kingdom of God then. <laughs> and he tells them another parable, right? A guy prepares a huge feast and invites tons of folks. And when it's time for the party, all of those who were invited, they give him excuses for why they can't come to the party, okay? And one guy is like, well, I just bought a field. I got to go do farm stuff. And another guy is like, oh, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I got I to gotta test drive these things. You know, you get it. And another guy is all, you know what, I just got married. I got family stuff. You understand. You know how it is. So all the chosen invites reject the invitation because they choose to do their stuff instead. They have family and farms to run. And families and farms aren't bad things. Okay. They, uh, they are life, right? So prioritizing your family and your lands, like how can that be wrong, okay? Well, put a pin in that. We're going to put a pin in that. So the guy putting on the feast, he finds out that the chosen invites reject his feast. And so he tells his servants, well, then go out in the streets and invite everyone else, the poor and the outcasts. Like, go get them, because this feast will not be postponed, right? We're not waiting for people to decide when they're ready. That's not how feasts work. And the servants bring in the outcasts, but there's still room for more people. And they're like, what do we do? (laughs) There's still room. And the master says, well, then go farther. Go out to the country. Heck, cross a border. I don't care. Just bring some people and fill this house up. And those who were invited and were unwilling, they will never feast with me. And then the story just drops off there. Like, we're just stuck with that in our mind, right? And that parable brings us to our gospel reading for today. It's Luke 14, starting at verse 25. So large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple." won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is f- neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And that ends chapter 14. And it's a chapter full of parables. And Luke clues us into that by ending the chapter with, Whoever has ears, let them hear. It's kind of like saying, If you know, you know. Because back in chapter 8, listen going the way back, Jesus starts telling parables to crowds, and he ends it with, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And his disciples are like, oh, this is new. He's never done parables before. He's never said anything like that before. And, um, and they ask him, like, what are you doing? And he tells them, in verse 10, he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, and then he quotes Isaiah, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So there's a line drawn. And it's not you get it or you don't. Okay, The line is if you see and hear the gospel, you now have a choice to make. You can ignore it, you can reject it, or you can let it transform your heart. And if you choose that, then the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God will be given to you, right? Your ears and your eyes, they work in a new way. Now, does this mean that you get an instant heavenly download of knowledge? I wish, but no. Like, show me a disciple who got an instant download of knowledge. Um, That's not how it works. They're students, okay? That's not how true learning works. They are disciples of Jesus, and he tells them that they've been given the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God. So what do they get? I don't know, but what I see here in chapter 8 is that they get to ask Jesus questions. Right? They hear the exact same parable of the sower that the crowd heard. But they know that it's more than just a riddle to suss out a solution to, right? They know it has meaning, So they have access to Jesus, and they ask him, what did your parable really mean? And he teaches them what the parable meant, right? Their hearts and their eyes and their ears, they were ready for more revelation from Jesus. Okay, so back to our gospel reading for today. Back to verse 25. Luke tells us that Jesus is no longer at the VIP's house for the Sabbath meal. He's still talking in parables. But now he's with large crowds. And I don't know if you remember, but last year, as I preached through Mark's gospel, we paid attention to how Jesus talked to different crowds. Okay, And sometimes he would just be addressing the disciples, right? And he would talk to them in one kind of way. Kind of like in chapter 8, just now that we kind of looked at, where he explained stuff to them in detail. And then sometimes when he was with the religious leaders, right, he would be kind of harsh, or maybe obtuse, because... Um, He wouldn't play into their traps. And then when the crowds were just crowds, and they're just there to see, like, the Jesus show, we noticed how fickle the crowds were, right? They loved him when they were uh, given, like, miraculous fish and bread to eat, right? But the next day, they're like, do the bread thing again. And he was like, no, you've just missed the whole point. And then they start grumbling, Right? So here we have large crowds, and crowds are fickle, and often we are the crowd, right? Now, does Jesus pander to the crowd? Is he like, you guys are a great crowd. I can tell you're not like the religious leaders, you know. uh, You're not out to get me. You're really interested in the gospel, and um, you're not here just for miracles. You're true believers. I'm just so pleased with you. No, no. No, Jesus never panders. Like, none of this is about indulging people. So what does he do when he has the attention of these large crowds? He says a very shocking and offensive and maybe even confusing thing, right? You cannot be my disciple unless you hate your family. What? Like, your nuclear family, okay, your immediate family, even yourself. Okay. And if you're not willing to carry your cross and follow only me, you cannot be my disciple. Yikes. Everyone with ears, let them hear. Now, is this literally about hating your family? Like are you allowed to hate your family? No. If you ever think Jesus is giving you permission to literally hate someone, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Because if he tells us to love our enemies, I'm sure he's not telling us to reject and abandon our families, okay? Did Jesus abandon his family? Uh, No. One of the last things he does while he's dying on the cross was to make sure that his mom had a family. And who did he pick to be her family? a disciple. So he's not about rejecting or abandoning families, but he is making us aware of our allegiances. Now, back then, much like back now, our family, our life, like, that's our identity, right? And it's really easy for us to make our family and our culture and our land, our career, like, whatever gives us our usness, it's easy for us to make that our primary allegiance. Right? We fall right into it. It's the easiest thing to do. But Jesus says to the crowds following him, if you don't hate your life and make the gospel, make God's kingdom your primary allegiance, you cannot be my disciple. And you gotta figure this probably thinned out the crowds, right? I'm sure some of them just bugged out immediately. Like, you know what? I used to like this guy, but now, I don't know. He's boring. And they leave. And then you probably have some faithful followers who are like, ugh, uh, I like it when he says this. I don't like when he says that. Um, you know, they lack a commitment. And then you have the disciples who are like, oh, no, he means it. Right? We've given up everything. We've, we've made the kingdom our primary allegiance, but... But what's he talking about crosses for, right? They don't have context for the cross yet, like the way that we do. We know how the story goes. They don't. You know they got to be wondering about that line, carry your cross. Carry your cross. Did he say carry your cross? Does he mean that Roman torture device, the one that puts criminals to death? We're not criminals. What is he talking about? Does he explain it to them? Like, no, he just keeps going. (laughs) And he gives these two scenarios, right? He gives them the tower scenario, right? If you're going to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and count the cost? Because if you just jump in and start building it, you're going to run out of resources. Everyone's going to make fun of you. And then the second scenario is about a king going to war. And he says, won't he sit down and consider the cost? And if the cost is too great, won't he try for peace? And he gives these two examples, and one deals with property, and one deals with human lives. And he wants them to pause and think about this. In both examples, the person first sits down and considers the cost. So Jesus isn't saying, like, just drop it all and follow me like mindless robots, okay? He's telling the people to follow him to first sit down count the cost, really examine your life and what you have and who you are. And then if you won't give it all up and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. And note that this is not about salvation, okay? This is not about believing, okay? It's not about believing that Jesus is God incarnate. This goes beyond your belief, okay? It's about discipleship. It's an action It's not a belief or a religious ideal. Because do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's great. That's a great start. So do demons. They know who he is, but they are not disciples of Jesus. No. Discipleship is following him. It's an action. It's a lifestyle. Like those songs we sang today. Were those just nice songs we were singing? I hope not. Now, if you want a really clear look at discipleship, I recommend getting five or six of your good friends together and spend about two years reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. (laughs) (laughs) It'll take about that long. It's so good, but it will break your heart, okay? It's very convicting. That's why it's good to read it in a group so that you can keep encouraging each other because it takes A lot of encouragement to get up and follow Jesus again. So it would be really difficult to try to preach a comprehensive sermon on what discipleship is. But here's just a good start. And, um, And here's where Bonhoeffer starts. It starts with the Sermon on the Mount. You know those Beatitudes? Well, as a disciple, those are your characteristics. Okay? Not just the ones you like, or not just the ones that you're good at, okay, but all of them. I know. Poor of spirit, meek, mourning. Like, these are not glamorous things. And you have to crave justice, okay? And not just for yourself, and not just for the people you like. You have to crave justice for everyone. You have to crave justice, you have to be merciful. you got to be pure in heart. Man, I've wrecked that one already today, right? The gas station on the way over here. And maybe we all want to be peacemakers, but who is up for being persecuted? Oh, no. And then the Sermon on the Mount, it keeps going, okay? So discipleship is hard, and there is a cost. And the cost is only Everything. And as Jesus tells us in verse 27, discipleship also includes suffering. It's carrying your cross. Are you willing to suffer persecution and a shameful death as a criminal? It's too much. And my biggest problem is I get overwhelmed. I get stuck thinking how I can't do these things. Not like Jesus, right? He did these things perfectly. I think, well, if I can't do it perfectly, then why am I even trying? I hit that wall. Anyone else? And it's stupid. I went to art school. Art school is all about failing every time you pick up your pencil, right? Why can't I just apply this to everything else? And it's a failure of my imagination, right? Uh, Because show me one disciple who did it perfectly. (laughs) They failed a lot. It's story after story of them failing. But they don't quit. They get up the next day, and they re-follow Jesus. So if you're like me, and you like to give yourself permission to quit because you know you're going to fail, so what's the point? I want you to change your paradigm from perfection to perseverance because perseverance, well, it builds up character, right? Character produces hope. Mm-hmm. So with perfection, I hit a brick wall with perseverance i can say was i a peacemaker at work last week or was i more of like a fire starter mm. i might need to go apologize i might need to refollow jesus so jesus thins the large crowds by saying this shocking offensive proclamation right that if your primary commitment isn't to god's kingdom you can't follow me and, um, and it almost sounds impossible, you know. Like, okay, sure, the disciples were disciples. Did anyone else ever a disciple? Yes. But if you've never seen anyone, like, live this way, or if you've never been discipled yourself, it's really hard to picture this. Like, it seems like a really lofty goal. It doesn't seem like a real thing. How do you make your primary allegiance to the kingdom and not to your family who are counting on you? I have kind of an imperfect example of this, okay? And it's fine that it's imperfect because we're not dealing with perfection anymore. We're talking about perseverance. Mm -hmm. So when I was younger, my mom worked for the church, right? Not this church, a church. And uh, she was on staff for, I don't know, a thousand decades? (laughs) And she had a very pastoral calling, right? But she worked in a church denomination that would not allow women to be ministers, Right and um, and instead of leave and go somewhere else that would and have her own parish, easily, she stayed humble and she served her role there. Mm-hmm. And here's what you need to know: dinner at the pickle house was sacrosanct. Okay, it was <laughs> sacred. You did not miss dinner, and you sat at the table as a family. Okay, these were the rules, and they were established by mom at the dawn of time. (laughs) Okay, but as her pastoral role at the church grew, it came to pass that she would get lots of phone calls at home, despite having office hours daily at the church. And lo, these calls started coming in at dinner time. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Every night we would sit down to eat, and before Mom could take a bite, the phone would ring, and it would be someone from the church who needed to talk. And this was almost every night. Am I wrong, Dad? This was every night, like clockwork. No, I know. And it, it was so bad that Dad even splurged, and he got his caller ID, right, with the hope of, like, well, we could see who called. They don't have to leave a message. She could call back after dinner, okay? But I bet she took 98% of those phone calls. Now, do you think if one of my friends called during dinner, I was allowed to just bounce and go have a chat? Absolutely not. But we'd sit down to dinner, and the phone would ring, and then we would all groan, you know. And do you guys remember the Christmas story movie? And the mom's making dinner, and she plates everybody's, and, uh, and then when she sits down with her food, the husband has already finished his, and he's like, honey, can I have some more? And she's like, Ugh. And she gets up, and she plates more food, and then she sits down, and the kid's like, can I have some more milk? And she gets up and, you know, gets the milk. And the narrator's like, my mom hadn't eaten a hot meal in 10 years. (laughs) Well, we used to say that when the phone would ring and she would stand up and one of us would be like, mom hadn't eaten a hot meal in 10 years. (laughs) Now, listen, this is not a dramatic example of discipleship, right? But it's a real example, okay? And there was a cost. It cost my mom this thing that was so important to her. Right, because she was the one who made dinner this sacred, unmissable act, and it kind of cost her her family too, because I know for me, I hated those calls. I hated them. Teenage dirtbag Jamie thought everyone who called at dinner time was like their half-imagined emergencies that couldn't wait till later. I thought they were an idiot. And I thought mom was a jerk for not ever once telling these people, like, hey, you know what, I'm in the middle of eating dinner right now. Can I call you back in 15? So, Like I said, it's not a dramatic example. She wasn't, you know, Mother Teresa. It's a really good example of someone giving up something she cherished in order to serve others doing the kingdom work. Now, earlier in the sermon, we were talking about the parable, um, about the feast of the kingdom. And uh, remember the chosen invites, like, made excuses of why they couldn't go to the feast? Right. And I said, put a pin in that. uh, Because I was asking the question, is it wrong to prioritize your family uh, for providing for them? I don't think so. You can make them a priority, of course. But God wants your primary allegiance, okay? He wants to be first before family, before career, before country. But as spoiled American Christians, I hear stuff like this sometimes, okay? I, I hear, I, I've heard this recently. Where someone was like, you know, we're so blessed. Our family is so blessed. And God gave us the family we always prayed for, you know? And our daughter, she's in dance, and she does the children's theater. And our son loves baseball, and he's so good at it. And uh, he wants to play in the majors, you know. That's a great goal. That's fine. He says his coach really thinks he has a chance, um, or at least for a scholarship, right? But it's really competitive. It's not enough to just play local little league anymore. So we have to play summer ball, too. Yeah. And it's not enough just to play spring and summer. we got to play travel ball during the winter, And, you know, we have to travel all over the southeast on the weekends. And we can't really go to church right now because with dance and ball practice during the week, we can't make it to Wednesday night or to the Bible study. But that's okay because God keeps blessing us. So it's just a season that we're in right now. Now listen, that season could be upwards of ten years, okay? If you're counting two years of middle school ball, four years of high school, and four years of college... That's a 10-year season of your life where you think God wants you to ignore him, to concentrate on baseball. Never not once. Listen, do not make the blessings he gives you the thing that you worship. Now, I love baseball, okay? And I love music, and I love sports and hobbies. All the extracurricular activities, those are great. But the second you start writing yourself permission slips to skip God's stuff to do yours, You've chosen your life over his kingdom. And it's far more disgusting when we do it. When we write ourselves the permission slips to have seasons where we ignore God so we can do our thing and then we sign God's name on it. Yeah, Yeah, God just, he has me in a place right now. You know, where he says, like, it's just peace. I don't have to do anything. It's just a season of working on me. show me where Jesus says this to someone. Please show me where he gives us permission to not serve the kingdom and where he gives us permission to fly solo in the body of Christ. There's no solo missions here you guys. I believe it says somewhere where two or more are gathered. When we think God's value, that God values our individuality over his communion of saints. And we've not been listening to God. We've been listening to our culture. And Jesus tells us at the end of this chapter, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, it's not fit for dirt or even manure. And the thing is, salt can't just lose its saltiness older it gets, it's not like the favor flades. It is a rock. Okay. It's already old. I, we all have salt in our houses right now. I bet it's the oldest thing we all have in our house. Mm-hmm. But the way that salt becomes less salty is if you add another chemical to it. And the most common chemical to add to salt to get it to change is water. And the more water you use, the less salty it tastes. So if we take Jesus' words, the shocking and offensive ones, or even the good news gospel ones, and we water them down, we compromise them to make them, you know, easier to go down for us, to justify doing what we think is important over what he tells us to do, then we make his words, his gospel, worthless. I'm not just pointing fingers here, okay? I'm pointing to <laughs> you. It does hurt. <laughs> this hurts my feelings. Yes, I am so including myself in this. Like I said at the gas station, I, I just failed already this morning. So I say this um, to my fellow spoiled American Christians, and that's me. If you pledge your primary allegiance to your own self-interest, your culture, your country, you are not following Jesus, and you cannot follow Jesus until you confess and repent, and then sit down and count the cost, and give everything to him, and refollow him. And we have to stop writing ourselves permission slips to ignore God's word and we certainly have to stop co-signing his name on that. And stop watering down God's truth because we make it worthless. And listen, by God's grace, we can turn this around. Okay? We can help each other. We can help each other do this. Okay? And we can learn to persevere and refollow. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us for worshiping the blessings you give us instead of you. And may we be willing to choose the kingdom, the gospel, over ourselves. And may we persevere in the action of being disciples in Christ. In your mercy, may we persevere through the suffering promised to us. And by your grace, may we encourage each other to not water down your word. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for showing us how to live as humans. And we thank you for your sacrifice that judges us as forgiven. And will you help us, Holy Spirit, to sit down and count the cost, what it costs us and what it cost God. Will you help us choose to follow Jesus in our action? In Jesus' name, amen.